Hi, this is your Russian Rulers podcast host, Mark Schaus. I'm interrupting today's podcast all the way from episode 108 to make a short announcement. I've created a new blog site for all things having to do with Russian history and far beyond just the rulers. You can find it at www.RussianRulersHistory.com. I mean, there's a lot of content there already to read about things like the Decemberist Revolt of 1825, the life of Sviatopolk the Accursed, Nikita Khrushchev, and much, much more. Of course, there's also a small little PayPal donation button there if you want to help support the podcast. It would be much appreciated. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 70. The Bolsheviks are coming. The Bolsheviks are coming. Now, before I get into that, I just have to excuse myself if I sound a little hoarse. Getting over the first cold I've had in about seven years, so uh, I'll try to edit out any coughing and things like that, but you just have to uh, put up with my voice today, and uh, hopefully it's a episode that you'll really enjoy. Last time, we recounted the failed trial of a quasi-democratic rule known as the Provisional Government, first led by Livov, then by the socialist Alexander Kerensky. On November 8, 1917, the Bolshevik communists, led by Vladimir Lenin, with able help from second-in-command Leon Trotsky, stormed the Winter Palace and seized control of the Russian government. Notice how I said seized control of the government and not seized control of the country? Well, it's because the Bolsheviks may have captured the Winter Palace and ousted the provisional government. They were far from being in control of the vast empire known as Russia. According to my favorite Russian historians, Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, it is hard to separate the Bolsheviks from their leader, Lenin. As I'm sure you've noticed in these past 69 episodes, Russia's leaders have had an incredible influence on Russian history. Lenin was certainly no exception. His charisma was nothing short of incredible, which is incredible in and of itself, as he really wasn't very good-looking. He was kind of short, and, well, at times he was quite timid. But in moments of crisis, he could turn into a mountain of a man. So who was this man who was to radically change Russia and the lives of everyone in the country, and dare I say it, the world, for over 75 years? Well, we need to start with his birth, of course, in 1870. His given name was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, and he was born in Simbirsk, which is about 1,500 miles from St. Petersburg on the Volga River. He was the son of a well-off middle-class family whose father was made a nobleman due to his work as the director of the Simbirsk's primary schools. Because of all of this, the children of the Ulyanov family were very well educated. And they were also taught that the social ills of Russia needed changing, laying out the groundwork for the children's later radical beliefs. But what made Vladimir such a radical firebrand? Well, aside from his upbringing, it was the execution of his older brother, Alexander, that cemented the conversion. His brother was implicated in an assassination attempt 
on then Tsar Alexander III in May of 1887. The future Lenin was only 17 years old. He was greatly traumatized and infuriated at the autocratic regime. That incident, along with the banishment of his older sister Anna, who was implicated in the assassination plot, was all he needed to find direction, the direction his life was to take. Now, despite the trauma, Vladimir continued his education, first at Kazan University, where he was expelled due to his participation in a student riot. Thereafter, he became self-taught until his admission into St. Petersburg University, where he was eventually given a diploma in law. The books that Lenin read during this period were to have great influence on his thinking. Works like Das Kapital by Marx and Engels, or those by Belinsky, Herzen, Pisarev, and Drobolyubov honed his, re his really revolutionary mind. But one work seemed to be the most influential, and that was Nikolai Chernyshevsky's novel, What is to be Done? This title was to be used by Lenin when he put pen to paper to publish his views of what needed to be done in order to change Russia for the better. The fact that he was able to read books like the ones he did shows how different Russia had become after the reformations of Alexander II. Despite the reactionary views and policies of Alexander III, and Lenin being under the watchful eye of the Tsar's secret police, universities were still a hotbed of radical discourse. No amount of repression could put the revolutionary genie back in the bottle, and we have to go back a little bit in time. It's especially true after the troops returned to Russia after they defeated Napoleon in 1816. The officer corps knew that Russia was miserably backward, and that knowledge began to spread to people. It is here that the fermentation of the Leninist version of Marxism began to brew. I love the way Ryazanovsky and Steinberg describe the basis of the Marxist system. Quote, the roots of Marxism include 18th century enlightenment, classical economics, utopian socialism, and German idealistic philosophy. In other words, some of the main traditions of Western thought. And I'd like you to sit back and think about this. Think of where Russia was at the turn of the 20th century and the world as a whole. The feudal system had crumbled just a few decades before. The Renaissance was only a few hundred years in the past but had only really hit Russia in the past hundred. Before you think hundreds of years is a long time, remember, things moved very slowly back then, and that ideas and writings took time to spread. There's no internet, no mass media, no television. Most people were still illiterate, so only a very small minority were educated enough to comprehend the changing world. Most people were only interested in mere survival, their next meal, so revolutionary thoughts and deeds was the last thing on their mind. But with the onset of the Industrial Revolution and the immigration of people from rural farms to cities, talk of dissatisfaction with the way things were grew. Schools cropped up due to the need to have educated workers 
But with education comes questions. Questions like, why do just a few people have all the money and power, and why don't I? What is so different about them that allows them to lord over and control me? What is it that stops me from taking over and ruling the country? You also have to understand that the ones asking the questions were not the peasants, although they wanted a better life. Just that running a country and overthrowing the Tsar was, for the large part, unthinkable. No, the ones who were thinking the unthinkable were the well-to-do, the newly minted middle and upper classes. The light bulbs of change were brightest in their heads as they came to the realization of how corrupt their world was. Now come back to the world of today and look at the turmoil around you. We're not so different at the beginning of the 21st century, except this time we hopefully use hindsight to truly change the system for the better and not fall into the totalitarian monster that was to become the Soviet Union. Back to Lenin. By 1895 in St. Petersburg, Lenin began to spread his ideals to like-minded revolutionary Marxists when he founded the League of Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class. The secret police were carefully watching Lenin, so on December 17, 1895, he was arrested for plotting against the Tsar. After 14 months of solitary confinement, he was exiled to Siberia, where he met the influential Marxist socialist Georgi Plekhanov. Here, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov transformed himself into the man known to the world as Lenin. Here, in Siberia, he married fellow activist Nadja Krupskaya in July of 1898. Lenin's exile ended in 1900, but instead of returning to St. Petersburg, he went to Munich, followed by time in London, and finally in Geneva in 1903. But it was in 1902 when he took the name Lenin, which comes from the Siberian Lena River. That year, he also met fellow revolutionary Julius Martov and wrote his book, What is to be Done? 1903 saw a meeting of the Second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. Now, there were three distinct factions. One, the Bolsheviks, led marginally by Lenin. The second, the Mensheviks, led by Martov. And the third and smallest were a group led by Trotsky. Now, the main difference between the three was on the issue of how the revolution should be manned. The Bolsheviks, guided by Lenin's What is to be Done, claimed that there needed to be a workers-peasant alliance against the Tsar. The Mensheviks believed that the liberal bourgeoisie should be added, while Trotsky thought that only the working class was necessary, with no need for the lower-class peasants or middle-class bourgeoisie to be involved. Lenin returned to Russia for a brief time in November of 1905, to take part in the revolution, but he hightailed it out with the crackdown started and orchestrated by Stolyepin in 1907. From 1907 until 1917, Lenin crystallized his ideas into what is now known as Leninism. With World War I breaking out, 
He moved to Switzerland to continue his arguments against capitalism. He viewed the war as strictly a capitalist battle between the German and the British Empire, with the workers, and especially Russia, as mere pawns. In March of 1918, he was made aware of the overthrow of the Tsar, and he knew he had to return to Russia. But how? The war made travel difficult, but after clandestine negotiations with the German government, Lenin, along with his wife Krupskaya and 28 fellow exiles, boarded a sealed one-carriage train and burned Switzerland, headed for Petrograd. Leaving on April 9th, they arrived one week later, on April 16th, 1917, at midnight. I don't think you can come up with a spy novelist who could have come up with anything quite so extraordinary as the trip Lenin and his compatriots took. When they arrived at the Finland station at midnight, a crowd cheered the exile's arrival, led by Menshevik leader, and trust me, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. I think it's Chikhiidze. It's my chance here, but tough name. Anyways, Lenin had shunned the leader, and in typical Lenin style, turned to the crowd and said, quote, The piratical imperialist war is the beginning of civil war throughout Europe. The worldwide socialist revolution has already dawned. Germany is seething. Any day now, the whole of European capitalism may crash. Sailors, comrades, we have to fight for a socialist revolution, to fight until the proletariat wins full victory. Long live the worldwide socialist revolution. Lenin actually thought that Russia in the revolution would only be a minor player, that in order for this to work properly, all of Europe and the world needed to be in an upheaval and revolution for socialism to really take hold. Now, while on the train, Lenin composed his plan for taking control of Russia, known as the April Thesis. Two of the sections bear reviewing. Number two states, the specific feature of the present situation in Russia is that the country is passing from the first stage of the revolution, which owing to the insufficient class consciousness and organization of the proletariat, placed power in the hands of the bourgeoisie, to its second stage, which must place power in the hands of the proletariat and the poorest sections of the peasants. The fourth one states, Recognition of the fact that in most of the Soviets of workers' deputies, our party is in a minority, so far a small minority, and that, therefore, our task is, as long as the government yields to the influence of the bourgeoisie, to present a patient, systematic, and persistent explanation of the error of their tactics, an explanation especially adapted to the practical needs of the masses. And as I said before, Lenin did not believe that Russia was to be the sole revolutionary state. Now, he believed that all of Europe, especially the industrialized nations, would rise in a glorious upheaval to overthrow the bourgeoisie oppressors, and the workers and peasants would take over and create the ideal utopian society. 
Trotsky would influence his thinking at this point to view the world as needing a permanent revolution, which would eventually necessitate a campaign of terror against the enemies of the revolution. A dictatorship of the revolutionaries was now in the mind of Lenin to replace the dictatorship of the autocratic Tsar. The Bolsheviks were to replace the Romanovs as the rulers of Russia, with Lenin taking the place of Nicholas II. As had happened 300 years before, when Michael Romanov took the reins of Russia following the time of troubles, now Lenin, in November of 1917, would take the reign of Soviet Russia. What was once different was just another repetition of history. The irony of what was about to happen was lost to the participants of the revolution of 1917, but hopefully is not lost on you, my fellow lovers of history. Next time, the Russian Civil War begins and lasts from 1918 to 1921 at the expense of millions of innocent and not-so-innocent lives. And now, for reading from Russian history. Now I'm going way back on this one. Uh, going back to the Primary Chronicle, also known as the Tale of Bygone Years, which seems to have been compiled around the beginning of the 12th century. And I'm just going to read a little bit about who the Russian people are, where did they come from, and their beginnings. For many years, the Slavs lived near the Danube, where the Hungarian and Bulgarian lands now lie. From among these Slavs, parties scattered throughout the country and were known by appropriate names, according to the places where they settled. Thus, some came and settled by the river Morava, and they were named Moravians, while others were called Czechs. Among these same Slavs were included the White Croats, the Serbs, the Kurutanians, and so forth. For when the Vlachs attacked the Danubian Slavs, settled among them, and did them violence, the latter came and made their homes by the Vistula, and were then called Liaks. Of these same Liaks, some were called Polyanians, some Luticinians, some Mazovians, and still others Pomeranians. Certain Slavs settled also on the Dnieper and were likewise called Polyanians. Still others were named Duravilians because they lived in the forests. Some also lived between the Pripet and the Divna and were also known as Dregovacians. Other tribes settled and resided along the Divna and were called Polyachians on account of a small stream called Polata which flows into the Dievna. It was from this same stream that they were named Polotians. The Slavs also dwelt about Lake Ilmen and were known there by their appropriate name. They built a city which they called Novgorod. The Sem and the Sula and were called Severians. Thus the Slavic race was divided, and its language was known as Slavic. When the Polyanians lived by themselves among the hills, a trade route connected the Varangians with the Greeks. Starting from Greece, this route proceeds along the Dnieper, above which a portage leads to the Levat. By following the Levat, the great lake Ilmen is reached. 
The river Volkhov flows out of this lake and enters the great lake Nevo. The mouth of this lake opens into the Varangian or Baltic Sea. Over this sea goes the route to Rome, and on from Rome overseas to what they called Tsarograd or Constantinople. The Pontus, also known as the Black Sea, into which flows the river Dnieper, may be reached from that point. The Dnieper itself rises in the upland forest and flows southward. The Dnevna has its source in the same forest, but flows northwards. It empties into the Varangian Sea. The Volga rises in the same forest, but flows to the east and discharges through 17 mouths into the Caspian Sea. It is possible by this route to the eastward to reach the Bulgars and the Caspians, and thus attain the region of Shem, also known as Asia. Along the Dnevna runs the route to the Varangians, whence one may reach Rome and go on from there to the race of Ham. But the Dnieper flows through various mounts, mouths into the Pontus. This sea, beside which taught St. Andrew, Peter's brother, is called the Russian Sea. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. One thing I do want to say is I've always told you to go to the Facebook uh, Russian Rulers History Podcast fan club page, but I'd like to do it for another reason this time. We started a discussion as to what I'm going to do after I finish with Putin. And since we are now in the 20th century, we only have less than 100 years of Russian history to cover. But what I'm looking for is ideas of what will be the face of this. And, you know, what I'm thinking of doing is covering the famous people of Russia who were not rulers. Because, frankly, most of the Russian rulers were not, per not really nice people. So we've had a, a number of ideas on you know, some of the famous musicians, composers like Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, painters, uh, writers, Anton Chekhov, uh, so many, Gogol. I mean, it was just incredible, you know, the history. But also events like the Battle for Stalingrad, which we will cover some. Uh, also the Crimean War, which I've, you know, kind of brushed over lightly in the past. So those incidents and people that you'd like to hear about, that's who we'd like you to uh, talk to us about on the Facebook page. We've gotten some great ideas from the people already. Uh, you know, we've got a nice list, but you know, if we want to keep this Russian Rulers podcast going, I'm going to have to have enough topics to keep it you know, fresh and uh, teach you about this wonderful subject known as Russian history. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, до свидания. И спасибо большое.